Hey, welcome to the Sermon MP3 from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. This is Sunday, November 14, 2021, and today we continue our series in 2 Chronicles 7.14 in Called by the Name. It's an invitation to prayer. And this Sunday's message is entitled, Engaging Heaven. May God bless you as you listen. You know, years ago, uh, these boxes are going to be flying off. There's an airplane on the side and everything. They're going to be flying off soon to go to their intended destination. We're going to give some time at the end of the service to pray for them. But, you know, I was on an intercontinental flight a number of years back between Toronto and Germany. And, um, you know, I, I, I didn't realize it when I booked my tickets, but I booked it next to the exit, the emergency exit. Now, before the flight could take off, the flight attendant comes up to me and she tells me that before the flight can take off, she needs to prepare me for what is possibly to come. And so, you know, not knowing exactly what that meant, she told me that if the plane should experience an emergency landing, that I would need to take responsibility for this emergency exit. And then she asked me, are you willing and prepared to do that? Because if you're not willing and prepared to do that, she said, I will have to find someone else who will, and I'll have to find another seat for you. And I said, yeah, I think I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm willing to, to do that. So she repeated to me the expectation after that, and then confirmed whether I was up to the task, and again, I agreed. And then she told me that, that, uh, that, all the rest of the expectations, she read them out on the door of what I needed to do. She told me all the instructions on how to open the emergency exit. And then after she was done, she said, do you have any questions for me? And I said, yeah, just one. And she goes, oh. And I said, yeah, how do I get my seat table down from the back of this seat? (laughs) And she kind of looks at me and a big confusing door on an emergency exit and a little latch to bring You'll get it later, honestly. You'll figure it out. You'll figure it out. But anyway, sometimes in life there are emergencies that we have to be prepared for. Emergency situations that that we need to be up for the task. Situations that we need to be willing to stand up for others for the greater good. And that's kind of like what our text for our series teaches us today. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 is a pretty familiar passage, especially if you tend to read it with an interest in revival. Sometimes when a church wants to uh, step up its prayer emphasis in its church, it will spend some time quoting this passage and, and maybe even teaching on it, kind of like we're doing here today, but just to kind of stress the need for a greater capacity for prayer among God's people. Sometimes when a church wants to emphasize prayer, they use this text specifically because it seems to be so specific. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. As I said last week, People usually recite this prayer, sometimes in times when things around them are in chaos, when the world they are are looking at and that they perceive it needs revival or at least some sort of social reform. But sometimes, something that we need to be aware of as we read this passage is that it was not written to us. This was spoken by God to Solomon for the people of Israel in the context of building and then dedicating 
this new temple in Jerusalem for the Lord. Second Chronicles opens with Solomon becoming the new king over Israel. He's David's son. And it says this in chapter 1, verse 1. Solomon, son of David, established himself firmly over his kingdom. For the Lord his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. And then, you know, fascinating part of the story is, and you maybe even read this in, in Sunday school, but the fascinating part is here, Yahweh then tells Solomon that he will give him whatever he asks for. In 2 Chronicles 1, verse 8 to 12, Solomon answers God and says, You have shown great kindness to David, my father, and have made me king in his place. Now, Lord God, let your promise to my father David be confirmed. For you have made me king over a people who are as numerous as the dust on the earth. Give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead this people. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? And since Solomon didn't ask for wealth or possessions or honor or long life or even the death of his enemies, God then gave him wisdom and knowledge as well as as wealth and possessions and honor, such as no king before him and no king after him ever experienced. That sounds like a pretty good start to a beginning of a reign, doesn't it? But as we learned last spring, as we walked through First and Second Samuel, it's not, important, not as important how you begin something as how you finish it. And from that good beginning, though, Solomon determined to build the temple for God that his father David wasn't allowed to build. And it says in chapter 2, verse 1, Solomon gave orders to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal palace for himself. That expression, for the name of the Lord, is odd, isn't it? But it's significant. Solomon gave orders to build a temple, notice that, for the name of the Lord. How do you build a temple for a name? In one way, the name is a way of bringing glory to God. It's a, it's a way of designating him as special and other. When, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we address the Lord saying, hallowed be your name, right? It's also like saying, holy is your name and glory to your name. When Solomon wants to build this temple for the name of the Lord, Solomon intends to glorify the Lord through its building. And in order for the temple to reflect the name of the Lord, it would have to be as glorious as his name, at least getting close. Adorned with the most massive stones in its foundation, the most beautiful of timbers, gold and precious stones inlaid in various parts and beautiful fabrics, and it was the most magnificent place to behold in the world. In another way, Hebrew and ancient Near Eastern scholar Stephen McKenzie adds from his uh, um, Abington Old Testament commentary that the name is probably related to the ancient Near Eastern custom where a king would lay claim to a site by placing his name there, usually by way of inscription. Kind of like how a mother writes writes your name in your underwear, you know, before you, as when you were a little kid, right? Am I the only one whose parent did that? Huh? No? I might have to have a talk with my mom. Because who leaves their underwear lying around in random places as a kid? Well, maybe I did. I don't know. And yet Solomon says in Second Chronicles chapter 2, verse 5 to 6, the temple I am going to build will be great because God is greater than all the other gods. 
And who is able to build a temple for him? Since the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain him. So he was running into a problem in his head. How do I build a place for the name of the Lord when it could not ever possibly contain his greatness? And so building a temple for the name became the Jewish, a Jewish way of saying God is too great to dwell in a temple alone. And so we'll build a temple for his name. Maybe a limiting factor in our brains, I don't know. But the name was already a way of referring to God himself. It, it referred to God's very presence, his essence. Being that Second Chronicles was probably written by Ezra the scribe, the, the scribes considered God's name to be too holy to be written or even spoken out loud. So the name became a substitution. For example, in Isaiah 30 verse 27, that casts the name of the Lord as an actual person. As God himself, it says in verse 27, See, the name of the Lord comes from afar. With burning anger and dense clouds of smoke, his lips are full of wrath and his tongue is a consuming fire. Even today, uh, Bible scholar Michael Heiser points out that observant Jews still today refer to God by saying Hashem, the name. It's a way of referencing him and honoring his holy name. Second Chronicles 6, verses 1 to 11, let me read that for you. As we go through it, notice the descriptions of the temple and the name. It says, Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell. While the whole assembly of Israel was standing there, the king turned around and blessed them. And then he said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hands has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to my father David. For he said, Since the day I brought my people out of Egypt, I have not chosen a city in any tribe of Israel to have a temple built so that my name might be there. Nor have I chosen anyone to be ruler over my people Israel. But now I have chosen Jerusalem for my name to be there. And I have chosen David to rule my people Israel. My father David had it in his heart to build a temple to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, you will... You did well to have it in your heart to build a temple for my name. Nevertheless, you were not the one to build the temple. But your son, your own flesh and blood, he is the one who will build a temple for my name. The Lord has kept the promise he made. I have succeeded David, my father, and, have, and now sit on the throne of Israel, just as the Lord promised. And I have built the temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. There I have placed the ark in which the covenant of the Lord has, that he made with his people Israel. The temple then, the temple of the name, is religiously, politically, and spiritually significant, not only to Solomon, but also to the people of Israel, to the collective of Israel. And now, maybe more than ever, because it's been over 500 years, nearly 500 years since they had been delivered out of the hands of the Egyptians. And since that time, they had only a portable tent known as the tabernacle in which to meet God and travel from place to place. They were, they were a people without a, a place to dwell. The tent housed the Ark of the Covenant, which represented and housed the presence. And until David, Israel was a displaced people, and the, temp, and the tabernacle traveled with them throughout their displacement. So when the temple was built... By David's son. 
it really quite represented a permanent space for worship. It represented belonging. It represented stability, a symbolic home for a displaced people, and a lasting monument to God's covenant and his divine presence among the nation of Israel. The temple of the name would distinguish them as God's special people on earth. Why am I spending so much time on this phrase, the name? Because it comes up in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, our our revival passage, doesn't it? 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people who were called by my what? Name. Not only did Israel have the temple of the name within its national borders, they were also known as the people of the name. And I think the chronicler makes such a big deal about these two distinctions about the name here in the building and then the dedication of the temple because, really because of the inherent problem among God's people. Specifically, they had a propensity to call on the names of other gods. They often fell into idolatry, quite regularly actually, since Moses. I mean, just before the times recorded here in First and Second Chronicles, we have the period of the judges, the period between Joshua and King Saul. During that period of 300 plus years, Israel went through generation after generation, cycle after cycle of apostasy and idolatry, calling on the names of other gods because, and because of their unfaithfulness, God gave them over to foreign powers until they repented until they turned back and they sought the face of the Lord and they returned to him and him alone. Remember how Judges ends. Judges 21, 25. We we got this in our our series on 1 and 2 Samuel back last spring. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, if you remember back to last spring, God was supposed to be their king, Right? They weren't supposed to have another king, an earthly king. God was supposed to be their ruler. They didn't need a king like the other nations had. Yahweh himself would lead them, and his commands and his covenant would be their law forever. But God's people had a repetitive problem, as I said, of rejecting the lordship of Yahweh so that they could do whatever they wanted to do. That's why they rejected him, so that they could do whatever they wanted, which resulted in wanting what other nations had, right? And as a result, they followed after their gods. Because it was by those gods that their neighbors got what they wanted. And so, didn't that make sense to follow after other gods to get what I wanted? And that's why, at every significant moment, whether it's at Sinai, the mountain of God, where God gave Israel the Ten Commandments, or in the wilderness, where he gave them the tabernacle, or whether it was in 2 Chronicles here, when Solomon builds and dedicates this temple for the name. Each time, God gives strict commands about obeying his law and not following after other gods. Kind of like the first commandment goes, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That was at the top of the list. They couldn't follow it. So Solomon knew with this repetitive problem of it, that Israel had, and I think that's why when God asked him if, that he could have anything, Solomon asked for wisdom. How do you lead a people who are habitually wayward in their heart? 
He knew he needed divine wisdom. I think that's why 20 verses of of Solomon's 26-verse prayer of dedication for the temple, the bulk of his prayer in chapter 6 is Solomon anticipating Israel's waywardness. And he begs the Lord ahead of time to forgive Israel when they come back to the temple and ask for his forgiveness and confess that they've sinned against him and promise to seek his face again. Forgive them, Lord, when that time comes. So when he when we come to the often quoted revival passage of 2 Chronicles 7.14, that's what's behind it all. And we see that this promise of hearing from heaven and forgiving their sin and healing their land is only a promise after the people who are called by his great name have humbled themselves and prayed and sought his face and turned from their wicked ways of idolatry. Then God says, verse 14, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. I mentioned last week that these revivalistic promises are specially for Israel and not for us. First of all, we don't have a physical brick and mortar temple anymore, do we? And and neither Canada nor the United States are the nation of Israel, just in case you didn't know that. Our Western nations are not the bearers of his name. Even if our prime ministers and presidents were all born again Christians, that would not guarantee God's favor for our nations. I know we vote that way. And in case you didn't know, the Bible does not say anything specifically to our two nations. Not one thing. However, There is a general principle within 2 Chronicles 6 and 7 that should catch our attention for today. When we look at the world that we live in, does it seem like the Lord is not hearing us from heaven in our national experience with him or even personally? Well, comparing Solomon's experience with God's people today, the church, the bearers of his name, we do, not, do we live like it? Do we live like we're the bearers of his name? When, when, when do we acknowledge his lordship in our lives? When we neglect him and we reject his commands and commissions to live instead as we want and to do what is right in our own eyes, then perhaps it really shouldn't surprise us that our society is going to hell in a handbasket. It shouldn't surprise us when our governments make unjust laws approving and legalizing things like abortion and sexual immorality and other unchristian activities. It shouldn't surprise us. Maybe it shouldn't surprise us when there seems to be this unpassable ceiling to our prayers, like the Lord is not hearing us from heaven about our nations. And what about your personal experience with him? Does does it seem like the Lord is not hearing you personally from heaven? So what is the solution to getting God to hear us from heaven? Is there a way to turn back the tide of wickedness in our nation? Far be it from me to say that anything is too difficult or impossible for God. But I don't know if I see anywhere in my Bible that God is looking to reform any nation on the planet. 
not even specifically Canada or the United States. I don't think that's God's plan. In fact, I know it's not God's plan. Even in Solomon's day, God didn't want to reform Assyria or Babylon or Moab or Philistia or Egypt. He didn't want to do that. That wasn't his plan. His plan was to call out a people of his own from among the nations who would be singly his people. What do I read in my Bible? It is that now, in the name of Christ, God is calling out and saving a new people from among all the nations on earth. Listen to how Romans 10, verse 11 to 13 describes it. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who come to him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will what? Be saved. God wants his own people. A people called by his name. That's still his desire today. So whether you're a Canadian or an American or an ethnic Jew or a Nigerian or an Indian or Pakistani or whatever nationality you are, if you confess the name of Jesus, then you are together a new people called by the name of the Lord Most High. As Galatians 3 puts it in verse 26 to 29, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave nor free nor male or female, for, all, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 to 10. You are a chosen people. Oh, listen to this. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And this new people today, the church, God is forming us into a new temple for his name. Listen to Ephesians 2, 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the, corner, as, as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple for the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We are now his new temple, the new dwelling place for God, the Holy Spirit. Remember your life network? We just spent a whole month talking about the God who is in us. See, here's the secret to getting heard from heaven. First of all, it's realizing your new identity within the new people of God. And second, it's understanding that you are now his temple. You are the temple of the most high God. You are the bearer of his name. We are the bearer of his name. We collectively are the temple. Remember your life network. Once you realize that, I mean, once you really get that, it rewrites your identity forever. If you bear his name, then you are his. He owns you. He dwells in you, and therefore, you got to represent him, right? 
Why do you think there is such a push today for people to want their sexual and gender preferences to be their new identity? Why do you think there's such a push toward identity politics today? You're either a lefty or a righty, and you identify as such politically and socially. Some people are even trying to find their identity in what they're not, like the religious deconstruction crowd. How we identify ourselves tells us what we worship. Right? Friend, do you worship God in Christ alone? Do you get your identity solely from him and not from the world? Is his name written all over everything you are and do? In his, is his name evident in how you talk, how you act, how you post, how you spend, how you volunteer, how you stay married, how you dream, how you plan, how you date, how you be single, how you protect, how you work, how you love? Some people wonder why their prayers seem to bounce off the proverbial ceiling. Well, God tells Solomon the consequences of turning away from our true identity. He says, let's go back to 2 Chronicles 7, verse 19 to 22. But if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I have given you, and you go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land, which I have given them, and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among my people. This is not the first time God gave this warning to his people through the centuries. This temple will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by will be appalled and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer because they have forsaken the Lord. The people will know. The other nations will know. Because they have forsaken the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why he brought all this disaster on them. I don't mean for this to be a harsh word in any way or a word of judgment. I don't claim to be a prophet or a son of a prophet. I'm not pointing a finger at anyone in this room or online, except maybe myself. Just a reminder, that's all this is. It's just a reminder that idolatry is always within the capacity of God's people. We see that generation after generation, century after century, millennium after millennium. Idolatry is always within the capacity of all of us. So today, if it's anything, it is a word to be careful. It's a word to be careful how you live and how you worship and who you worship and what you worship. For whom you live, who, I, who's, who you identify with, and whose identity you claim, and who commands this new identity. And if you're finding it hard to get heard from God these days, there's probably a reason for that. It could be that you're still trying to gain access to him based on your old identity. You're still trying to get access to him by wanting what you want and not what he wants. You're wanting his benefits, but you're still wanting your own identity and your own independence that comes with that. No, you may not be worshipping a Baal or an Asherah or a Molech, 
but you're prioritizing yourself and your wants and what the world values before God. That's idolatry. Idolatry takes many forms today in the modern world. And you'll know that you worship other things when, you be, when they become the content of your prayers. Things like an identity other than the one that you have in Christ. Whether it's sexual, political, or otherwise. Whether you spend all of your care and concern on your weight and appearance. Maybe your career is what occupies your prayer life. Maybe having nice things is a priority of everything you do and spend. Maybe your leisure time and your weekends are your own. Family is a big part of our priority. Maybe providing your kids with everything you didn't have has become the most meaningful thing that you can do in the world. Or maybe it's giving them experiences, exciting experiences that you can't afford. Maybe it's your education. Maybe it's titles. Maybe it's just the innate desire of your heart. What do you pray for? What do you worship? It's still idolatry, even if you Christianize it. Modern-day idolatry is still alive and well. Anything that you love, treasure, prioritize, identify with, and look to for need fulfillment outside of God can be acting as an idol in your heart and in your life, and it needs to be broken off. And where there is idolatry, there's a ceiling to our prayers. Idolatry, even small indulgences, block our prayers. But, Second Chronicles 7.14, this is our takeaway. Even though this passage isn't directly spoken to us, it has application for us. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Let me leave that on the overhead for a minute as you walk through that in your head. And I'll ask the worship team to come on up and get prepared. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Notice it begins with, if my people. Are you his people? Are we his people? Is his name on you? If they will humble themselves, how do you humble yourself? Well, the passage asks, do you pray? Do you seek his face? Do you turn from wicked ways? When do you do that? Where do you do that? How do you do that and how often? The Christian church has always emphasized daily time with God because God is personal. He's not not in this building except by way of his people. So we don't go from Monday to Sunday And then do Sunday to get God's attention. We are the church. We are always containers of his presence. So daily time with God is important. Daily time to pray, to seek his face, to turn from wickedness. Are you humble enough to worship him? Are you humble enough 
in your worship of God to commit daily time to God. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and do these things. You are his temple. So you don't have to go far. So there's no excuse for not showing up in the morning and being all there with God. It it is also making Sunday mornings a priority. Even though this is not his temple, we the church get together regularly. Even the church said, do not give up meeting together as some are in their habit of doing because this is important. I'm going to call for some Sunday upholders. That's what I'm calling them. People who will come to the church early, like 10 o'clock early, and pray through the different parts of this church. Pray for the different ministries of this church, our youth, our children's ministries, our worship service, our Bible studies in small groups, our women's events, our office, our staff, everything. And there's a little brochure on the Welcome Center. When you come next Sunday, I encourage you to come. Just grab one of those brochures and walk your way through the church and pray. We need those kinds of prayers to make this place a a, a sanctified place so that God's people can meet with him wholly. At the beginning, I told you about my transcontinental flight between Toronto and Germany and the emergency exit that I was responsible for. I felt pretty important that day, by the way. But But the question behind it was, are you willing to take responsibility for the safety of others? And really, when we get to this prayer of 2 Chronicles 7.14, it's begging that question. Are we willing to step up and take the responsibility of praying, not only for our own selves and our own needs, but for others and their spiritual encounter with the living God? I encourage you to take that responsibility humbly and to pray, to seek the face of God, to turn from your own wicked ways so that he will hear from heaven. Let's worship. Let's worship.